0: The religion of Islam was birthed in a shame-based culture. Muhammad was uh, a Nabatean from a a Bedouin kind of background and uh, his culture and his worldview was all from a shame-based culture. He understood shame and honor. And as the Qur'an was uh, revealed and as he gave the different parts of the Qur'an to people, he was speaking to people who understood uh, honor and shame as the most important governing factor in their thinking and in their worldview. And this was the core of Islam. And so, as Islam expanded and as the Muslims took Islam to other countries and as they spread across Africa and into Asia, they took uh, with them this uh, shame based worldview. And re- Islam was more than just a book, the Quran. It was more than just uh, teaching about community and how people should relate. It was, it's teaching a, an entire worldview and how you see the world and how you see God and how you relate to your fellow men and all the things that, that are involved is, uh, is from a perspective of honor and shame and understanding that as an important, uh, the most important factor rather than uh, fear and power or right and wrong and so forth. So Islam, as it spread, took with it this idea. And, and all, uh, all along the way, people mixed the whole honor and shame concept with their own worldview and their own language. But eventually, as it spread, this honor and shame became the predominant thinking that they took with them uh, all along the way with the armies. Now, to understand um, how a Muslim thinks... You have to understand that they're in a different places. M- someone in Indonesia may have a slightly different worldview than someone in Bangladesh, who will have a different worldview than someone in Afghanistan or someone in Iran or the Bedouin in Arabia. So, the examples I'm going to give uh, about Islam and what, what the experiences I've had with Islam are coming from uh, a Middle Eastern perspective, from the Levant, from uh, Saudi Arabia, and from Yemen, and so forth. Because this is the core of Islam. And these are the kinds of things that were exported and ideas that went out. And so the, the, it's common to find them in other areas around uh, the Muslim world. But we want to look particularly at how the, the Arabs in the Middle East look at honor and shame. We want to start with uh, the whole idea of shame. And I would ask my friends, uh, what brings shame? What, what would mark someone as a, a person who is shameful? Or what would bring shame into someone's life? And they gave me this list and they said, first of all, uh, the important thing is your, your family. Are you from a, a good family or not a good family? And so your birth status, when you're born, you have honor and shame immediately attached to you. What is the, the, uh, the, the job that your, your, your family has? Um, what is the, the tribe that you belong to? What is the, 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 the village that you're in? And, uh, and perhaps uh, you're in a, a, among a group of people who are seen as less honorable than someone else. So there are tribes out of which leaders come, but there are other tribes which are more common laborers and so forth. So they immediately, as soon as you're born, there's some stigma already attached to you. Perhaps your father is just a, a common laborer or a simple uh, a shepherd or something like this. So, so you are born with that stigma already attached to you or perhaps some sense of honor because your father or your grandfather was a great person or a great leader. And so they immediately take uh, honor in themselves, saying, oh, I'm from this family and I'm the son of so-and-so, who's the son of so-and-so, who's the son of so-and-so. And these are known names and that it gives you a certain sense of honor or of shame. But there's something else that uh, is attached to that, and that is the whole idea of failing. For uh, a Muslim, the concept of failure is, is, a, is a frightening thing. To the, just to the, if, if you failed, if you try something and you fail, people will look down on you. I had a good friend um, that I worked with, uh, we, we, had our, our, we shared the same office and his computer was back to back with my computer and, and we talked very often during the day. and One day he came to me and he said, I have inherited some money. I have about $50,000 that is going to be coming to me soon and I want to invest this money in something, maybe in a business. And I was wondering, what do you think? What would be a good business? And he was asking many different people, what should I invest my money in? So I thought about things for a while, and I said, well, you know what? If I had money to invest, and I'm in this particular country, I would do this. And I gave him my business plan. I told him I would open a butcher shop. And I would uh, get money, I, I would get uh, meat from the, 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 the slaughterhouse that was very close, uh, located close by, and I would uh, butcher animals, and then I would find a Western butcher who knew how to cut steaks and roasts and things like this because nobody in that country knew how to cut western cuts of meat. And then I would find in the western side of town where all the embassies were and set up uh, points of sale in the supermarkets where people could go and actually find a steak or find a roast Uh, because I knew all the foreigners and there were many foreigners in this city uh, because it was full of all the embassies of all the countries from around the world they were all looking for cuts of meat that they recognized They didn't just want kebab or or things like this. They wanted, you know, cuts of meat they recognized. I said, you could have a very successful business because you could hire one or two people that work down there uh, taking the meat, cutting it up, uh, and and then uh, packaging it and supplying it to supermarkets. And uh, I talked about it. We drew up a business plan. But he was talking to others, and he went around to other people. In the end, he bought for himself an olive orchard. Now, I wondered, why would he buy an olive orchard? Because the country was full of olive orchards. And I asked him about this later. I said, I'm not upset. I'm just curious as to why you chose an olive orchard over all the other suggestions that people gave you. And he said, because if I have an olive orchard, I cannot fail. He said, if, there's a, every, if, the, if it's a bad year, everyone fails. There's no shame lost. But if I start a business and my business failed then I would carry this shame and I would be shameful in front of all my friends. So I cannot take the risk of being innovative and trying something else and trying something new. And so uh, failing was very important. So in much of the same way, um, innovation is also uh, something that brings uh, shame. You, You don't do something different. You don't invent something new. In Islam, there's no concept of innovating, beginning something new. I mean everyone knows how to pray and Muslims have prayed the same way, in the same form, in the same direction for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. You don't innovate anything in Islam. You don't introduce new, um, let's bring music into the mosque and let's have musical instruments and singing. You don't do that because you don't innovate. The whole concept of bringing and inventing something new, a new way of doing things is, uh, is just foreign to, uh, to people. And So if you innovate and do something new and different, you, you're looked on with suspicion rather than, oh, he's very clever at doing something. It's, uh, it, innovation is, is just something that uh, is uh, just not... Uh, not accepted. In fact, I heard a proverb once, and a man said, "Innovation is the root of all evil." And so, it just it surprised me that innovation could bring shame. Also, another thing that, that I found is that the the Arabs that I were Im- were among they feared isolation. Isolation was something that was just foreign to them. Now, one day we were out shopping, my wife and I, and it was in the late afternoon. And when we finished our shopping, we went out to catch a taxi to go home and the streets were empty. There was just, there were no cars on the street. And I was waiting because usually the cars, there's lots of cars and you can easily flag a taxi. I was having a very hard time getting a taxi. And eventually we got the taxi and we got in and I said, what's happening? The city's empty. There's nobody on the streets. Oh, he said, everyone's watching this new TV program. I said, what? Well, wh- what's the TV program? Oh, he said, it's the most amazing TV program. That you, you know, And so everybody's watching it. It just caught the nation's attention. So I was very interested to find out what is this TV program about. And it's kind of like a soap opera. It ran every day for about two or three weeks in the afternoon. And it was a fascinating story. It was a story, at least to the Arab mind, it was a fascinating story. It started out, the first uh, story was about uh, this young man. And uh, as he was uh, going through life, he was saying goodbye to family members. His aunt and uncle emigrated to uh, another country. And uh, his father and mother went off to visit somebody else. And uh, slowly everyone in his circle of friends left. And eventually he was all by himself. And this is the story of a man who's trying to survive in an Arab world by himself. He'd have to rent an apartment by himself, find a job by himself. And this was just fascinating to the Arabs because in their mindset, you do everything as a group. You could never rent an apartment without that wasta, that representative from your family who would go and, and uh, look for an apartment. You couldn't get a job because you would always go to your family and it was a family member who would find the job and recommend you. And you couldn't get a wife because uh, you, you have to have a family member go do the asking. And so this was a comedy and this young man had to pretend he was all the people in his family. He would make phone calls pretending he's the uncle and he would uh, you know, make, uh, he, he would have to dress up and visit somebody and then recommend himself and then go back and, and come back again because he was trying to be everyone in his circle uh, that should be in his family, uh, his support group that he had you know, around him. He had to try to be all those people so he could survive and everyone was enjoying this film of this man trying to live by himself in culture because isolation Is something that they they can't comprehend. How can you live by yourself? When we first arrived in the Middle East, the big question was to my wife and myself, how can you live here without your mother and your father and your cousins and your uncles and everyone else? It just was mind-boggling that you would live in isolation, that you would move away and not have those kinds of support structures. So for them, isolation is something that uh, brings shame. Another thing that uh, brought shame. And we would ask them, well, well, what about if I did something? And they had to think for a while. Because they said, well, when we said, well, if I'm a man, if I do something, what would bring terrible shame on my family? And they had to think for a while. I "Ah, I don't know what would bring shame. Um, um, You know, maybe if you stole something and got caught. Getting caught would bring shame. But getting away with it brings honor. We, uh, out in the village, in the Bedouin village, we had, uh, when we moved into the house, I discovered in, in the, just in front of the st- by the street in front of the house, it was just a gravel road there. There was sort of a hole in the ground and I wanted to park my car there, but I couldn't because there was this hole with big rocks in it. Well, two or three days after we were in this house, I discovered what the hole was. At nighttime, the neighbors would come over and take the rocks out of the hole and underneath was the water main. And on the water main, they had tapped in a tap. And so they would come and hook a hose to this and they would water their, ho- their trees and their orchard and they would wa- put water in their tanks all around their house. And they said, look, we have free water. Just come and get it. I said, no, thanks. I don't need free water. But I mean, and they said, oh, the guy who did this, he was so clever because he's got free water for everybody in the neighborhood. So yes, they were stealing water from the, from the, the, the municipality or, the, or the, they called it the Belladia from the government, but they saw it as clever now, getting caught would bring shame, but stealing brought honor. And so it was very interesting to look at how that was. They saw themselves as honorable. So getting caught at something could bring shame, but as a man, there was very little that, that I could do. And, 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 and they said, well, there's very little that, that would bring uh, shame on my family. However, if you left your religion and changed your religion, that would bring terrible shame on your family because that affects everyone. You have rejected your mother, your father, your uncle, your cousins, everyone around you. You have rejected a society. You have rejected the mosque, and uh, that would bring shame on everyone else because of the way that you have acted. So they said this would would have to be something very dramatic that would bring shame onto the family. But for females, that's a different story. You see, for a male, when he um, is, is, uh, gets married, his wife brings him honor. And so a woman could rob him of that honor. You see, a young man growing up, he's just a young guy, and uh, he, as he grows up, he has no honor. They call him a Sheb, just a, a, a kid. And you might be 30 years old, you're not married, you're still a kid in their eyes, because you're not married. You don't have any status whatsoever. So the, the day you get married, your honor is raised in the tribe because now you are a married man. Now you have a home, you have responsibility, and you become a responsible member of the tribe. So the man's honor is given to him by his wife. And then their desire as a couple is to have male children. Now females are wonderful, but male children carry on the name of the tribe. If there are males in the tribe, the tribe will grow and expand and become more powerful. Therefore, males are very, very important. And the day that you have a male child, your name changes. My, my oldest son, his name is Michael. So my name became Abu Michael. And everyone called me Abu Michael. In fact, most people that I knew they didn't know my real name. They didn't know who I was. I was simply Abu Michael. And everywhere I went, that was my name. And that showed that I had a son. I had a son, and therefore I was in an honorable place because I was the father of Michael. And so, and my mother was, uh, my, my wife was the mother of Michael. And so, we, everyone knew that we had a male child. So the wife brings honor to the husband. But what would happen if the wife cheated on her husband? She then brings shame onto the family situation. So the man, he can go around and do whatever he wants. And they understand that men can be sexually aggressive and do different things, but his wife cannot be. She is maintaining that honor. And so shame is very much attached to the Uh, to the female and she can easily bring shame into the family. And therefore women are in a place where they're always being very careful because they're the ones who may bring shame onto the family and the family situation. We watched as families around us raised their children and I noticed something with language. Never ever in all of my years did I ever hear an Arab family ever say to their children, don't do that, it's wrong never said. What they said is, don't do that, it's shameful. Because they put everything on the scale of honor and shame. So don't do that, that is shameful. And so uh, I noticed that the, this was often the, the, what the women said. In fact, as training, I watched as parents raise their children, it was the women who taught the children what was shameful. It was the men who taught their sons especially how to act honorably. And this is the role they took as mother and father. And so the women are very aware of this world of shame and they are making their children aware of it. The father is very aware of the honor that is attached to him and to their family and it is his job to instruct his children and to raise them up and teach them how to be honorable citizens and part of the tribe, of the family, of the tribe and of, the, of society. And so these are the roles that they play. And so children can bring shame on the family. The wife can bring shame on the family and so the husband has to be careful in raising his children up so that they can uh, be honorable in the family. Now other ways of, of shaming people is with words. Words are very powerful in, in most Muslim settings. And so if I come up and say to you some terrible thing about your mother as blackface or whatever you know, and uh, People will respond in anger. This is the one thing that is very, very powerful. Because in a Muslim setting, words are very, very important. All Muslims respect words because of the Quran is, is brought in the Arabic language and language is very important. Any insult is taken very, very personally. And people respond to insults worse than I mean, I've been in many situations where people insult one another and I have good friends and we poke fun and we insult uh, each other. And I'd say, oh, it's all your fault because of this. And he'll say, no, no, it's, and we have fun with this. But you cannot do that in, uh, in an Arabic setting where you, you you insult someone else as sort of a bit of fun because they will take it very, very personally. Because insulting with language is, 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 a, is very, very offensive. And so many fights start because someone says something and then somebody gets angry and they say something and... Huge uh, things take place because of language. Now, most of us in the West don't understand this. A good illustration, uh, which uh, happened just uh, a number uh, a while ago, is that the president, uh, president of the United States, stood up in public and said, "There is an axis of evil, and there are three countries in the axis of evil," and he publicly declared this to the world, not thinking of the impact that he would have, as he named three countries. Within hours, those three countries responded. One started a nuclear program that was in mothballs. They restarted it. Another one, I mean, country, started I mean, their whole military program. And again, they also started looking at military things. They, they reacted very, very violently to what was being said because they were publicly shamed in front of all of the other nations. And often we don't realize we say something. We don't realize the huge impact that this has on others because they have been publicly shamed because of something that was said with words and with insults. So it's very easy to, uh, to say something, and if it shames someone else, they take it very, as a very big offense. In the same way, we have to be careful in what we say about uh, Muhammad as a person, the prophet of Muhammad, because Muslims are very sensitive to their prophet and anyone who would publicly bring shame upon him or upon their religion. And they feel it personally. It's, it's very, very important to them. They hold their prophet, they hold their book in very, very high esteem. And if someone says something that's derogatory, says something that looks down on them, they, they, they react and they can react very violently because they take it very, very personally. So shaming was, is, uh, is a very important aspect in Islam. Another thing that is important is that shame can be used in, uh, in, in a setting that so you can use it to defend yourself or you can, you can use it in, uh, in clever ways that we wouldn't think of in the West. There's a, a story that is told in the coffee houses and uh, around the Middle East. It's a, fa- a fascinating story. It's a story of a sheikh. He's the leader of his tribe. And he's traveling through the desert and in the heat of the day it gets very hot and he's very tired so he sees some trees and he decides to go over there and rest. And he lays down in these trees in this little oasis and he goes to sleep. And uh, just before he goes to sleep, he takes his robe. Now, very important for the sheikh because his robe is the robe given to him by his tribe. It has a little bit of gold uh, edging around it. It it shows his position of authority and, and who he is. And he folds his robe up and he puts it there carefully so he doesn't mess it up. And then he lays down and he goes to sleep. While he's sleeping, a thief comes along. He sees the sheikh there and he sees the robe. So he takes the robe and he goes off with it. Well, the sheikh wakes up after a couple hours. It's getting a little cooler now, and he wants to journey on. He looks around, and his robe is gone, and he can see the footprints in the sand. Someone has stolen his robe. He's very upset. So he goes home, and he tells this to his Family and his his brothers are there. His sons are there, and they get very upset, and they say, "Let's go find the thief." And so they spread out, and they are going all over to all the villages to see who has this robe. And sure enough, they find the thief in the marketplace trying to sell the robe, and they catch him, and he's got the robe in his hand, and so they take him off to the magistrate, and they say, "Okay, uh, we've caught this man." And so the sheikh comes and, and the magistrate is there and people gather and there's a crowd there watching and so they present the case and the sheikh tells his story of how he went to sleep, folded up the robe and when he woke up the robe is missing. And then uh, he says to the judge and we, our family we went and we looked and we caught this man in the marketplace selling the robe. He is the thief, he's guilty and he's the one who needs to be punished. And the uh, the, the judge says, okay, too, and he turns to the thief and he says, now tell me your story. And the thief says, okay, it's true. I was out in the desert. I was walking along. I saw a man asleep under the tree and I saw a robe there and I went over and I stole this robe and I went down to the marketplace well, He said, and I, and I sold it. But he said, when I was going through the desert and I saw this, this man asleep and I was just going to take his robe, he said, I decided first and I would have sex with him. And while he was sleeping, I had sex with him and then I took the robe and, and stole it. And the sheikh says, let me see that robe. And he looks at the robe and he goes, no, that's not my robe at all. And so that was the end and the court case was over and everything's finished. And the, uh, the people listening to this in the coffee house they laugh and they say, that's a good story. Now what is the story all about? The story is all about honour and shame. And you see the thief is caught, but when he attaches shame to the robe and it could be shame attached then the man who's accusing him backs away because he doesn't want to be attached to the shame and the case is finished and it is all over with. So it's a story that illustrates and they love these kinds of stories but it illustrates to us the importance of honor and shame. There's another story that's told uh, of a man, a judge and he comes home one day and he finds his wife in bed with another man. He's very angry and he has a gun in his hand. And he says to this man, he says, I could kill you with one shot. But if you can swear to keep this totally secret and you will never say anything about it, then I will let you go. But if you ever say anything about it, I will kill you. So the man leaves. And then he takes his wife and he divorces her and says to her, never say anything about this or I will kill you. And then his wife is free to go. And in that way the judge maintains his honor because no one knows. It's all covered up. This is a, a very important concept in, in uh, shame-based cultures and especially in Islam to cover over any kind of shame that is there. If you ask someone, how are you? He may answer, it's all everything's all covered. That's how he says it's fine. Everything's covered. And so, how are you? Everything's covered. And so he's not saying that nothing exists, that there aren't any problems, but everything is covered over. And so it's an important concept to catch that that shame uh, can be covered up. And we want to remove ourselves from shame in that way. Well, what about lying? Is lying right or wrong? Well, if you come from the West, Maybe you've been told that lying is always wrong. I was told that. Lying is always wrong. That was my worldview. You'd never lie. You always should tell the truth. And we look up to people who tell the truth. Even if it hurts you, you still tell the truth. But in Islam, you're not taught that. Lying is different. It's put on a scale of honor and shame, not on a scale of right and wrong. See, for a Muslim, there are only a few things that are wrong. The Quran tells him he can't eat meat, he can't drink wine, he can't uh, equate something equal with God, and so forth. So these are the things that are haram, they're forbidden. These are the sins for a Muslim that are forbidden, he can't do them. Everything else in life is put on this scale of right and wrong. And Muslims, when they talk about... uh, uh, the way things run, they talk about society, because society is very, very important to a Muslim. Uh, What society says and what God says are two different things. You see, when you're in a country and there's a speed limit and it says you must go 100 kilometers an hour or 60 miles an hour, depending on the country you're in, God didn't make that law. Society made that law. So if you break that and go way faster, this is not a sin because it is uh, something society has said. It's not something God has said. So for them, they're very uh, very uh, interested in what did God say, and these are the things that define what I can and cannot do. Everything else is put on a scale of honor and shame, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's um, uh, lying, whether uh, it's, it's, it's stealing or whatever. It's put on a scale of honor and shame because you're not told directly you must not do this. And so one of the areas that uh, Islamic uh, philosophers have argued about is the whole area of lying. And so there's, uh, Al-Ghazali has has said this to us uh, about lying. He said, know that a lie is not wrong in itself, but only because of the evil conclusions to which it leads uh, the hearer, making them believe something that's not really the case. Ignorance... Is sometimes an advantage. And if a lie causes this kind of ignorance then it can be allowed. If It is, someti- it is sometimes uh, your duty to lie. If lying and the truth both lead to good causes then you should tell the truth. But if a lie is forbidden uh, I mean, then you shouldn't lie in that case because it's forbidden. But if a lie is the only way to get a good conclusion then you should go ahead and lie. It is lawful. You can do it. So we lie uh, when truth leads to something unpleasant, but we tell the truth when it leads to a good result. So lying is not put out, said it's wrong. You have to look at the result. And so if it means that you can lie and it maintains your honor, then it's fine. You can go ahead and lie. So maybe you're traveling in the country and you come to a crossroad and you're not sure where to go and there's some people there, you ask them, I'm looking for this town or this village, how do I get there? And they say, oh, you go down this road and you go here and you go there and so you go off and you find out That's, you're totally wrong. You know, and the next guy tells you another set of directions. Well, why are they lying to me? It's because they don't want to look ignorant. They don't want to look stupid. So they will tell you an answer that you want to hear and you go on your way happy from them And uh, then it's all over because they've maintained their honor. So it's a struggle sometimes with this whole area of people telling you things that perhaps is not true or perhaps is true. Well, what happens when shame happens? If there is something that happens that brings shame, then what is the result? First of all, the important thing is to conceal shame. And all through the Muslim world, people are involved with concealing it, covering it up. There's a proverb that says, a concealed shame is two-thirds forgiven. And so you, you, you cover things up. If something happens and you don't want people to know, you, you don't tell them about it. And you, you cover it up. Maybe you have a, a, your child is born and it's handicapped, severely handicapped. You take the child and uh, in the old days they would go out and leave the child in the desert and he would die. But it's better for that than to have the shame come upon your family. Nowadays you might find in many countries they would take the child to a church and leave it on the doorstep. So somebody will find it and raise it. Or now there are homes and places for handicapped children. Just go and leave it there. I worked for a number of years in, uh, in a school that was for handicapped children and, and uh, continually children would be just dropped off at the school. And people would go away. Sometimes the parents would come and actually say, this is my child, can you take them? And we would get a signature. And sometimes you didn't even know who the, children, uh, who the parents were of this child. So they, they completely cover it up. It's concealed. Maybe if a girl gets pregnant out of wedlock, they, uh, they take her as soon as it's discovered. And if it's early enough, she just goes away visiting somewhere. So you come by and say, Oh, where's your daughter? Oh, she's visiting her aunt or her uncle. Well, which aunt or uncle? Oh, it's a distant aunt or uncle. At that point, you stop asking questions. If somebody's avoiding telling you the answer, don't dig too hard because maybe they're trying to conceal something that happens. We just are we have a good relationship? I don't dig. But you see, they can perhaps it's it's legitimate, perhaps it's not. But she will go somewhere, maybe have an abortion. And then go have an operation or maybe have the child then you can go to a doctor and they'll do an operation and restore back her virginity and she can come back and everything is fine it's all covered up and uh it's no problem but what happens if people find out well the next stage is then you deny and you say no 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 it didn't happen never happened i'm sure no 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 it didn't happen i'm sure your wife was pregnant no no actually she wasn't pregnant she's just gaining a lot of weight you know the baby was born but you you don't tell anybody no 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 she never was pregnant okay they just deny it everyone denies it everyone just drops the subject and life goes on because shame is covered up it's covered or it's denied and you don't deal with it but what happens when you can't deny it what happens when people find out what happens when the girl It's obvious she's going to have a baby and everybody knows and there's nothing you can do about it. Everybody's talking everywhere about what is being said. Well suddenly you have a problem and the way that the Islamic tradition is and the Middle Eastern tradition is, is that when there is a severe um, shame that happens on a family then they take revenge on the one who brings the shame. And so if it's the girl who's in this position, the revenge comes upon her. If it is a man who does something, the revenge maybe comes on the man. And so revenge becomes an important part of the worldview of these people. You do something and revenge is 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 there. And that's something that guides and guards society because they know if they step out of line, people will take revenge. In one of the countries I was in in the Middle East, they had civil law and they had tribal law. And the very first thing that the government wanted was let the family settle it. If the family can settle issues, the government will not step in. But if the family can't handle it, then the government would step in and uh, take care of these things. So um, civil law and family law were two very distinct things. So what happens when somebody shames? The thing that's important to realize is that In most Muslim families, the eldest son has the responsibility of maintaining the honor of his family. So it's the eldest son, the eldest uncle, and so forth. They get an extra piece of the inheritance because they are the enforcers of the law of the family, which is through the shame. And so if somebody dishonors the family, it is the job of the oldest son to... uh, to make sure that the honor is maintained in his family. So it's a very uh, big responsibility that the oldest son carries uh, along. I want to tell you a story about a friend of mine. He was actually from a Christian background and uh, Greek Orthodox background. And uh, he had a sister. His sister was going to school and his sister fell in love with a Muslim boy. And uh, she one day decided to leave home. So in the middle of the night, she got up, she left the house, took her belongings, went over to his house and they went through a Muslim wedding and she became a Muslim. And uh, in the morning when the family woke up, the daughter is gone and she had become a Muslim. Now remember, this is worldview. And we're talking about worldview that affects both Christian and Muslims living in this area. And so the family was very, very angry. And when they were out on the street, the Muslims taunted them. And I've heard Muslims in this area doing this. And they were saying to the Christians, we got one of yours last night. One of yours became a Muslim. Ha ha, you know, you're losing, we're winning, we got one of yours. And they taunted the Christians on the street. Well, the family was very, very upset. The extended family was upset. And so they chose the oldest, her oldest brother, who was a, uh, an older teenager, and they said, you must maintain the honor of our tribe, and it is your duty to kill her. Now my friend was that oldest son, and he was a believer, and he really struggled because now the family wanted him to kill his sister. And he explained to me, he said, what happens is, is the barber and most barber shops uh, have a drawer there somewhere and they'll have a gun and they'll have bullets. And you go to the barber shop and you say, I want to rent a gun and you can rent the gun. You pay money to the barber and he puts the bullets in the gun and he gives you the gun. Then you carry it around for a few days and you watch to see when would my sister come out of the house. Maybe she goes shopping or maybe she, she's out in public. When she's in a public place, then I come up close to her and then I shout uh, out to everyone around and say, this is to maintain the honor of the family. Put the gun to her head and shoot her and kill her. Take the gun back to the barbershop, return it, and then wait for the police to come. The police will come and arrest him and put him in jail and in jail then there will be uh, a court case and they will the police and the lawyers will examine the situation and the question that they're asking will be was this an honor killing or was this murder because they are two different things and if this was murder because he was angry with somebody then it's he's guilty of murder but if this was an honor killing to maintain the honor of the tribe and all the family will give all their evidence that they are the ones, yes, this is the story, this is what happened, this is what happened to his sister. Within a couple of months, he'll be out of jail, and he will be free, and he will have maintained the honor of his family. So his grandmothers and his aunts and all the people in the family are saying, you must maintain the honor of the family. This is your duty. You must go do it. And I didn't realize the impact that this was having on his life. He refused to make that, to do that. I didn't know that about him um, and I hadn't realized uh, th- how this was affecting him because he was really struggling with this. And uh, because he was then also moving into a position of shame. His family said, if you don't kill her, you have to move out of the house. And so he had to leave his house. And he, left in the, he lived in a small room on top of a, an apartment building right up on the roof. He had just a little one room there that he lived in. And he, he held to it. I don't want to kill her. The way to win her back is by love and extending love to her. Well, eventually some of his family members started to agree and they picked up on this. And so then um, they were, you know, they were then saying as a family, okay, you re- you, we are uniting with him. We need to try to love her and win, win her back. Well, my landlord was an uncle of this family and he then went and said, I will send one of my sons and he'll go do the honor killing. And you know, we need to maintain the honor of the family. And so th- this, this was a continual problem that was going on in the family because maintaining the honor, using honor killing, was very, very important. In the small country of Jordan, one year when I was there, there were over 120 honor killings that the government classified as honor killings in the country. There were murders, but there were also honor killings. And uh, it's an important concept. The uh, Abu Tamam wrote, and he said, With the sword I will wash my shame away. Let God's doom bring on me whatever it may. But the concept is, with the sword, with blood, I can wash away the shame of my family. And so I will revenge those who bring shame on me. Now, the Muslims have this idea that, uh, and, and people look at the Muslim world and say, well, there's always... Um, things happening. There's always people getting killed. This wouldn't, doesn't sound like a society I want to live in, but for them, they have this concept of, that peace is, is um, the absence of war, and so it doesn't matter. Even if somebody gets killed, we're, we're not afraid or whatever. We, are, um, we live in a society where, where, where we are protected. You see, when, when, um, when you walk through society, your family also protects you and you are part of that group. And so it's very important to feel part of that group because you know that your, your honor and your shame is attached to them, but they're also your protectors. If you get in a car accident, your family will come in and they will negotiate for you and help you because they are maintaining the honor of the whole family. And so it's very important for them to, to have this idea of the family and who they are. Uh, on one occasion, way back when we first went to the Middle East, we were living with a, an Arab family and uh, with a Muslim family. And at one time, they, my wife was cooking a meal with all the girls and they ran out of tomato paste. And my wife said, oh, I'll run down to the store and I'll get some tomato paste. And uh, they said, okay, but take one of the girls with you. She said, no, no, they're all busy. I'll just go by myself. And they said, no, no, you must take someone with you. Take the, one of the little boys with you. No, no, it's okay. He's playing here. I'll just go. And they said, no, no, take, take somebody with you. Take the grandmother with you. They would not let her go by herself down to the store to buy something. And so my wife told me about this. And I thought about it. And so the next day I saw one of the boys, the older teenage boys, and I asked him about it. Why, why wouldn't they let her go to the store? And he wouldn't tell me. He got embarrassed and so we, he wouldn't say it. So I, every couple of weeks or whatever, I'd bring this up and ask him again. And finally he said, okay, I'll tell you, this is why she can't go to the store. And he said something to me, and I didn't understand it. I had to write it down, go home, look it up in a dictionary had to find out what he was selling to me. And he said to me, this is the sign of a prostitute. She is walking on the street by herself. It means she has no uncles no older brother who are going to protect her, she is available because she doesn't belong and you can go up and approach her. But if she has someone with her, a child or a sister or an old, another person, it says she belongs to a group and if you offend her in some way, there's an older uncle or an older brother who is going to defend her honor. Therefore she must take someone with her when she walks on the street because it's an announcement to everyone that she belongs and that she is part of of that uh, uh, that family and of that group. So this honor and this shame is very, very important because it is a protectant for you as you go through life. That older brother, that older uncle is there. He will also protect you, but it is also a danger because if you step out and bring shame on the family, they will come after you at the same time. So there's a balance to that. Well, what are some of the things that bring honor into a Muslim society? And uh, honor is... Uh, the other side of shame. And so we'd ask people, what are some of the things that are important about honour? And I was told that um, honouring your elders is a very, very important thing. That um, in the Muslim world and in the Arab world, older people have honour. And you must always honour your elders, respect the elders, listen to the elders, listen to what they have to say. And uh, and respect them in that way. So uh, honoring elders was held very, very highly. And everywhere we went, um, people held old people in respect and they would help them and do things. And it it made society very nice in the way that the older people were treated everywhere that we went. And, And we saw that honor was attached to older people. But I discovered other things that had honor attached to them. And most importantly, honor was attached to hospitality. And uh, everywhere we, we went, um, hospitality was exercised. People would say, come in, come have a cup of tea. And if you refused, you were refusing their honor. And uh, it, for them, they wanted you. So they would say, when we came in, they'd say, you have honored us by our presence, your presence here. And we would reply, no, you have honored me by inviting me. And we recognized that just coming into someone's house and sitting with them was this exchange of honor. And so hospitality was uh, very, very high on their list of ways to show honor to someone else. And so you would honor people by having them into your home, by being hospitable, by having a cup of tea with them, by, by sharing with them. And everywhere we went, people were in each other's homes. They were visiting, they were sharing, they were talking, and they were inviting us into their homes. So hospitality was very, very important. And as a Westerner, I had to learn not to refuse hospitality. Because I could dishonor someone in that way. One day I was getting ready for a meeting. I was uh, going out. I had my, my suit on. I had my briefcase. I was just ready. I was opened the door to go out of the door of my apartment. And a guy was just going to ring the bell. And it was a young guy. I knew we had talked about uh, different things, about Christianity and so forth. And he was coming by. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I, I apologize to him. I, said, I have a meeting to go. I and mean, he hadn't even entered my house. And I said, I have a meeting to go. And and um, uh, you know, listen, come back in about two hours. I'll be here this evening. And uh, you know, sit down. We can visit. Can you come back in two hours? Yes, he said. I'm free this evening. Wonderful. Okay. Good. I said. And off I went. Rushed off to my beanie because I was late. He never came that night. He never came again. Every time I went to his house, his mother said he wasn't in. And that was the end of our relationship. I didn't realize how important it was because what happened is I w- left my apartment. Everyone had seen him enter the apartment building and co- go upstairs and everyone knew he was coming up to visit me. What they saw was I left and two, two or three minutes later he walked out of the apartment and left and obviously I had rejected his hospitality. and I didn't realize the impact that that had. Well, there was another time when um, uh, I was down in the market and uh, this guy... Um, came and, and picked me up and sort of started talking to me and uh, it was okay so we, we, we talked a bit in the market and all the way home he followed me home and talked with me all the way home and when I got home um, I invited him in and he came in and he asked me all kinds of questions and um, it, it, was, it was I thought okay we're starting a nice friendship here well uh, next day he came by for a visit and so we visited some more and and then he started saying um have you got any magazines, you know, with girls in them? I, I'm looking for magazines. And it's like, no, I don't have any magazines like that. Oh, he said, have you got any beer or whiskey in the house? Um, no, I don't have any beer or whiskey. Oh, oh, okay. Um, and then next visit, he sort saying, is you, is, does your wife have any sisters? I'd like to get married. And after everything he said, I, it was made me uncomfortable because what he was looking for was some Western connection and it wasn't something that I could offer him. And So, I went to someone I knew and I said, How do I get rid of this guy? How do I communicate to him? I'm really uncomfortable with his friendship. I'm uncomfortable with who he is, the way he comes across. I would really like to sort of separate this. But he sort of, he just attaches himself to us and I I want to separate somehow. And, you know, how do I say that without offending him? Or how does he know that? And so, this wise man gave me instructions of how to do this. So, the next time my friend came over, I was. waiting, and uh, uh, you know, he, I, he came, and so I, the door, he knocked on the door, went to the door, opened the door, and there he was. Oh, I said, well, it's nice to see you. I stepped outside and closed the door, now I'm standing outside my house. All the apartment buildings are around and so forth, different buildings, and so I'm standing there, and we start visiting, and I ask him, how are you? How's your wife? How's your, you know, how's your, not your wife, how's your, how's your mother, and how's your, your, your family, and, and how's your work going? And we sat and, and talked for a few minutes, and, and, um, and he he looked at me and we talked a bit and he looked at the door a few times like have you forgotten to invite me in and i just continued to talk and uh and we stood there we had a very nice visit and in the end he said goodbye and he turned and he left and he never came back again because i never invited him into my house all the neighbors he was getting very worried in the end wondering who's looking out the windows to see that he was came to visit and i never invited him into my house and that was the communication i had refused Hospitality and therefore he was not welcome and he never came back again. So hospitality brings honor or brings shame and it's a huge thing in their lives. Well, another way of showing honor is flattery. Flattery is when you, you say something that's maybe not true but you put the other person up. I would get into a taxi and we would start talking and they would go, Oh, you speak Arabic. And uh, Yes, I've been studying Arabic. Oh, they say your Arabic is better than my Arabic. Well, that wasn't true, uh, but they would insist on this. And this is flattery. This is telling you something. You know it's not true. He knows it's not true. Everyone knows it's not true. But you're telling the person that to lift them up, to make them feel good. And so very often people would use flattery to honor someone. In the same way, gift giving is very important. So giving of gifts. When you go on a visit, you bring a gift to someone because that honors someone. And, and you, you, you give them things. And so um, for them, they love to honor you by giving you a gift. We learned the hard way as well. You never admire things that uh, someone else has because they will give it to you. If you would say, oh, that's a, that's a, uh, a, a nice book you have there. It's very interesting. It's, oh, take it, take it. And you will not leave the house without taking that book. Now we had a good friend, uh, a couple that lived with us. And this lady, she, we were just new in the Middle East. She kept coming home with things that the neighbors were giving her. And she said, oh, they're so wonderful. They give me all these things. Well, I discovered that, that she was, was saying, oh, that's a nice necklace you have. and They'd take it off and give it to her. Oh, you know, that's an, uh, nice shoes. Where did you buy those? Oh, and they, she would end up taking them home. And so they, they give gifts. And they do it because it demonstrates their honor. And they're honoring you. And so we have to be very careful that we are aware of these things and we're not um, abusing the whole system that's there. Honor is also attached to families. And you feel families are very, um, very important. Who your father is and who your father's father is. So they, they know about their families. I had a, a man uh, tell me uh, a story. And he said, you know, I'm from a Christian background. And he said, you know, they, they tried to force my uncle to become a Muslim and he refused. He he took his horse and uh, they were forcing him and he took his horse and he leapt off the city walls and uh, and he died. And I said, "Wait a minute. Wait a minute. A horse on the city walls?" I said, "This is your grandfather?" Well, no, my my grandfather's grandfather's. Well, I said, "Well, when did this take place?" He said, uh, and we figured it out. It was about 900 AD." And he said, and we know the family, we know the tribe, and someday we're going to take revenge. Wow. That's a thousand years ago. And they were waiting. And when law and order disappeared in Iraq, then it was time to take some of those old things that now you can take revenge on somebody. And it was a crime that was a thousand years ago. They still remembered. You see, family is so important. And that grandfather's... Uh, the this, this shame that became, was there was attached to that that had not yet been dealt with. And that family had held that and knew that for centuries. And the time was coming when they could deal with it. So honor and shame is attached to your family. Well now we live in a modern world and things are changing. And one of the things that changes is education. And a quick way to get honor is to get educated. We saw, when we first went to the Middle East, we saw Palestinian refugee families, very poor, had nothing. They would sacrifice, they would work hard to put one son in university. When that son graduated with his doctorate's degree, he would then be putting the next kids into university. And slowly we saw those families over 20 or 30 years pull themselves out of the refugee camp and end up living very successfully on the western side of town. And they did it with education. Because education gives them a quick road to honor. As we've mentioned, marriage is an important way to honor and so forth. So what makes a person honorable? Money, heritage, wisdom, if you can say wise things, um, charisma. They like physical strength, bravery, uh, loyalty, loyalty to the group in spite of everything else and so forth. These are all things that um, bring honor into the family so muslims live in this world where they're aware of shame but their whole world is focused on this pursuit of honor can i act honorably can i become honorable can i get money and success and wealth and become somebody of honor and and then i can go around saying i'm an honorable person we are now an honorable family and so forth and so they're they're trying to move always into this area of demonstrating who they are and that they are an honorable person perhaps Uh, They may live in a very poor section of town but they will buy a very nice automobile so they can drive around and say, I am somebody honorable, look at the car that I drive. And they could go somewhere else with their nice clothes, their nice car and no one knows what family background they're from or who they're at. And so they're constantly looking at ways in which they can improve their honor and move up uh, and move forward. So honor and shame is very, very important in a Muslim setting and the the Quran and the Hadith speak to this, the whole religion caters to this whole world view of of honor and shame and uh, they're locked into it. The question is, how can we share the Gospel to people who think in terms of honor and shame rather than right and wrong? And that's the challenge we have as Christians, is to relate the Gospel and what does it say to people who believe in honor killing?